0: you'll see that the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is from Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. I'll read that aloud, and then we'll read the passage that we're reciting or memorizing together, and the purpose of that is very simple. We're in the same book for the next two years. We thought, why would we not memorize Scripture? And so we'll read that one aloud after I read the passage that I'll be preaching on this morning. If you're able, would you please stand? The passage I'll read comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. You can follow in your bulletins or in your own Bibles. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And now would you read with me from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Would you please be seated? Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this epistle to the Romans And as we come this morning, we confess that we are sufferers. We are those who've experienced great trials in our lives in various forms and fashions. We struggle mightily with these words to rejoice in our suffering, or as James has said, to count it all pure joy. And so we ask, Lord God, that as we look at this passage this morning, we ask that this would not simply be an exercise in theology or doctrine. Uh, But rather, this would be a practical uh, exercise in application for our own hearts, uh, that we would see, Lord, how you have uh, designed our trials, and that we would rejoice in them, even in the bitterness of trials and suffering. We thank you, ultimately, that you have saved us through your Son, Christ Jesus, and we ask now that everything we say and do would be for your glory and that we would worship you with our lips and with our hearts. We love you, and it is in your name we ask all of this. Amen. Well, this morning, this passage we're looking at, I imagine you're probably familiar with it. We, for two months, uh, tried to memorize this passage together. We read it aloud each week. We recited it. It's printed on the bookmarks we sent home with you And so I hope, I'm very hopeful that it is a very familiar passage to you. Now, as you notice reading the passage, the main subject of of this portion of the text is suffering. Paul is speaking about suffering. He has a message that concerns the suffering that we experience as human beings. And I thought to begin this morning, it would be very helpful if we just took 15 or 30 seconds and we wrote down... Uh, some of our greatest trials. So here's what I want you to do. Just think about the last year of your life and whether you're writing in your own notebook or on the insert in your bulletin, just write some of the trials that you experienced over the last year of your life, okay? Uh, Do it because it will help you to apply the passage as we work through it this morning. I'm gonna write some of my own. Go ahead and write them. Make sure you're writing your own, okay? Some of our trials over the past year for me It would be things like foster care, the building of the church building, and working with VDOT. That's always interesting. could be physical ailments. For me, that's my knees. They never quite work right. It could be internal, things like anxiety. That would be true of me. Uh, Sin issues. I could talk about pride. I can be a prideful uh, human being. It could be relationships, okay? Go ahead and write down your greatest trials from the last year, as you do so, it will bring the passage to life, okay? This will be much less of a theoretical exercise. It will be much more of a practical reality as we look together at this passage. So make sure you've written down some of those things. You won't have to read them out loud. Nobody's looking over your shoulder. It's just for you. Write down some of your greatest trials over the past year. This morning, again, the Apostle Paul is speaking about suffering. Now, As we think about suffering and the trials that we often experience, we tend to see human beings looking at suffering in at least three different categories, okay? The first category would be that suffering is, you might say, random. And that would be anyone who has a view uh, that there is no God or that God is uh, not concerned with the things that happen in our lives. And for those that view suffering and trials as sort of the random Uh, a work of a a world that's just uh, going without a design or a plan, that ultimately typically results in a a futile ending, okay? You've encountered people like that. They end uh, life sort of uh, in a depressive state. They end uh, with sort of emptiness. There is no hope. And if we view our suffering as random, that ultimately results in that hopeless ending. There are some people who view suffering as it is permitted by God. Okay, that would be the, the God who concedes or permits our suffering. That may seem like a, a hopeful explanation of suffering, but ultimately that also results in the same end. You see, because if we view God as permitting our suffering or conceding our suffering, allowing it to happen, ultimately we begin to ask two big questions. Is God really good if He permits suffering, if He allows it? And also, again, what is the purpose? Because to allow, to permit, or to concede implies that God will let it go, but that there's really, again, no design for our suffering. What the Apostle Paul is going to be arguing today and in the future chapters is that not not only does God permit or allow, but rather He plans or He designs our suffering. And that's going to change the way that we're told to look at the trials that we encounter in this life, okay? That they are planned or designed by God. And if planned or designed by God, that they have a purpose, that they have an outcome. Ultimately, this is where the Apostle Paul is moving this morning. So he will say to us, not simply that our trials are bearable, which seems like we've been making good progress if we could bear with our trials. He, he won't simply say that. He will say rather that we rejoice in our suffering, okay? That's ultimately where he's going. So let's look at the passage this morning and look at how Paul gets there as we work through this very short two verses, okay? Uh, three verses. So let me first of all say, as we, as we consider this passage, the first thing that we're going to look at is the, the immediate uh, few words that are in verse three. It says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. The first thing we're going to talk about is rejoicing in sufferings, okay? Rejoicing in sufferings. What does it mean to rejoice in sufferings and why are we told to rejoice in our sufferings. You'll see there in verse 3 a transition phrase. It says more than that, so we have to refer back to the two verses that precede this. And if you remember last week, Pastor Chris was preaching on verses 1 and 2 and he said it is about our justification. The apostle Paul has said, "If we are justified by the blood of Christ Jesus, then we have there were three things last week that we have. We have access to God, Uh, We have peace with God, and we have hope. Those are the three things pointed out in verses 1 and 2 last week. Now the apostle moves forward, and he says not only that, not only do we have those things, and those are very great, wonderful, grand things, but we also have this very practical thing. And that's where he's moving in verse 3. Because we've been justified by Christ Jesus, through that justification, now we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. I would imagine if that's the first time you've ever read this passage, you're probably thinking, well, there's got to be some mistake. Seems as if Paul has just misspoken. Or maybe it's a translation error. Maybe he didn't exactly mean rejoice in sufferings. But as a matter of fact, that's a very biblical idea. It is a truly biblical idea. If you fast forward to Paul's letter to the Philippians, you'll find the whole epistle to the Philippians is concerned with this very idea. The passage we read this morning from James, chapter 1, verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Okay. As a matter of fact, this is a very biblical idea that the trials and sufferings of believers are things that we are to rejoice in. And there's a really important question of how and why we are to do that. But one of the ways we see that in the passage this morning, see I've, I've written four Greek words. We're going to do a lot of Greek this morning. The first Greek word, kalkometha, or uh, is the word that's translated as rejoice in the passage. It's actually a word that means uh, to glory or to boast in. Okay, to glory or to boast in. Someone mentioned to me this morning, the actual original root of this word literally means to hold your head up high, okay? Like to raise your chest, to hold your head up high. If you want to understand exactly what Paul means when he says rejoice in your sufferings, think of this. Imagine for yourself a a proud parent who's like watching their children uh, in a sporting activity or is looking at pictures in a sort of nostalgic way. You, You know what it looks like. You've Many of you have been that parent, right? Their their chest is held high. They're grinning from ear to ear. There's a pride. There's a glory. There's an excitement and encouragement. This is the word that Paul uses to encourage us in how we're to view our suffering. He says that we, because of the justification that we have through Christ Jesus, that we are to glory in our suffering, we are to boast in our suffering. We are to raise our chest, have our head held high, to find some satisfaction in our suffering. It's a very interesting description of how we are to handle these things, isn't it? It is terribly interesting, and as I think about how Paul Describes this again. I, I think we have to ask the question, why? And ultimately, I don't want to steal the thunder from Romans seven and eight and nine. But ultimately, where Paul is going is he will speak about the plans and the designs that a good God has for our suffering, and and what we realize is that when we are in Christ. The things that were once part of the fall and part of the brokenness of this creation that were only being overseen by evil and administered by Satan because we were in the world, those things, once we are joined together with Christ, are they become the purposes of the living God for our good. And so he designs them, he plans them, he purposes them, he makes them so they are to be used in us for our ultimate well-being. And I find that to be absolutely amazing. And it helps us as we work through this to see ultimately what God is doing for us. Let me share with you one quote from Charles Hodge. When Charles Hodge was preaching on this passage, here's what Hodge said. He said, since our relation to God has changed, our relation of all things to us has also changed. Afflictions, which before were the expression of God's displeasure are now the benevolent and beneficent manifestations of His love. These words in Romans 5.3, these words do not mean that we glory in the midst of afflictions, but rather we glory on account of them. See, isn't that interesting? I, I think if I had asked you this morning how as... Christians, we're to handle our trials and our suffering. I imagine that most of you would say, well, we're to we're to be happy or joyful or glory in spite of our suffering. Or we ought to do it irregardless of our suffering. But what the apostle is saying is that we rejoice in our suffering. And as Hodge just pointed out, not that we, we, we rejoice or glory in the midst of our afflictions, that that's even a little bit closer. But no, that's not quite what the apostle says that we glory on account of our suffering. So let me ask you a question. How many of you, before you came here this morning, how many of you would have looked at your list of your greatest trials from the last year and would have said, ah, I rejoice in that. I glory in that. I boast in it. Um, I wake up and I think, "No, look at the suffering. I, I imagine it's like none of you I actually would imagine that as you wrote these things down, the feeling that you had was not like the proud parent feeling. It was the feeling of like the anxiety building up within you just as you wrote those things down, right? Like you couldn't, you found it hard to even write those things because the way it makes you feel. Would it be true? I think it would, okay? The way it's being described here is that these things are the very things that that we rejoice in, that we boast in, that we find glory in. And if that's hard for you, that's okay. That's hard for all of us, okay? But, but here's what we're going to do. Paul is now going to move us through an explanation of, of why that's the case. And if we can comprehend why it's the case, I imagine that this, as the Spirit begins to work in our hearts, we will find the purposes in the trials and suffering that we once greatly feared, and we will come to see them as, again, the perfect plan and designs of God, okay? And so here is the second point. As we look through this passage, what good is God working out in our suffering? If we're told to rejoice in our suffering and if, we, if we're saying that it's because a good God plans and designs this for us, then what good is God actually working out in our suffering? Well, look, that's what we begin to see in the second half of verse 3. So it begins, it says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and and character produces hope. You see, many people have described this as the chain of hope. We find out as Paul's speaking that our suffering and our trials is designed and planned by God ultimately to result in our hope. This is where this is all going, okay? Okay? That part of the the design of the God who oversees the cosmos and designs all the affairs of men, part of his design is that our suffering and our trials would ultimately, through this process that's being described here, that it would ultimately result in in the the hope of believers, a hope in Christ that is building up until the day that we finally are joined together with him. It ultimately results in our hope. But let's look for a second again at those words. There's a few things worth pointing out. I think are, are terribly important to us as, as we consider this passage. First of all, you, you might ask the question, well, what type of suffering is, is good for the Christian? What, what type of trials are we talking about here? And I've, I've heard a number of ideas. There was even a few commentaries in reading through this passage in Romans, a few commentaries who had ideas about what type of suffering is good for the Christian. Some people have suggested that uh, the type of suffering that's good for us is suffering on account of Christ, Okay. Suffering for the sake of Christ. When I look at my list, I don't have a ton of things I suffer for the sake of Christ, but I would put, you know, foster care for us is in the category. we do foster care not because we delight in it, Um, and sometimes there is some delight in it, but we do it because we feel in certain seasons of life that it's a calling. So I would consider that a suffering for the sake of Christ. Is this what Paul's speaking about? Hold that thought. Some people have said that the suffering that we're encouraged towards, the suffering that results ultimately in hope, is the suffering that we experience unjustly, right? When, when people are unjust towards us, they steal from us, they cheat, they lie, you know, whatever that looks like. If I was to look on my list, I'd say my relationship with VDOT has often felt like an unjust relationship. It may not be the case. Huh? If you work for VDOT, I'm sorry, I don't mean all of VDOT. I just mean that's the way I feel, okay? Some people have suggested unjust relationships are what God has in mind when he speaks about our suffering and our trials. Is this what Paul's speaking about? As you think about these things, I want to encourage you with an emphatic no, because I want you to see that Paul has a much more broad vision in mind for our suffering and trials. How do I know that? Well, this is the second Greek word, flipsasin. Flipsasin, it comes from the root word flibo which is just a fun word to say, thlibo, okay? And Paul could have chosen any word to describe suffering. I mean, this is just a million Greek words for suffering, like 10 times as much words for suffering as there are for the good things, okay? He could have chosen any word. He chose thlibo, which literally means pressure, Okay? It's not very specific. It's actually a very generic word. As a matter of fact, this passage, if you were going to do a, a really literal translation, this passage would read like this. Okay, We rejoice in the things that put pressure on us. Because we know that the putting pressure on us develops endurance, and endurance develops character, and character uh, produces hope. Okay, And when you consider it in that way, it seems very clear that the apostle is saying to us, All of the things that you might consider trials and suffering, those things, all of them are actually part of the plans and design of a good God to ultimately result in your hope. I think the word pressure is actually a really good word. You think of the the ways that we often talk about our trials and suffering, we often describe them with pressure words, right? Like, I feel like I'm being beaten to the ground. Okay, I feel like my head's about to explode. I feel like I'm under a lot of pressure, right? We say those things, don't we? And that's the word the apostle uses to describe our suffering in this passage. The things that, that put pressure on us. You see, then, therefore, let us not too narrowly restrict our thinking when it comes to our trials. The the suffering that we endure ranges from the lightest to the heaviest, from the trivial to the severe, from the overt and external to the hidden and the internal, for the sake of Christ, and so it seems for no reason at all. That would include anxiety about work or peers in school, broken bones, broken relationships, having a bad memory, Struggling to learn, losing a pet, losing a loved one. It includes disabilities, illness, cancer, barrenness, conflict, doubt, temptation, sin, and being sinned against. Circumstances like wars, murder, racism, generational hatred, job losses, internal turmoil and indecision, homelessness, being widowed, being orphaned, being bullied, Failing an exam or the fear of pain and death. And there's a thousand more examples of what that's like in everyday life for every believer of the things that press in upon us, that put pressure upon us, that feel like they're caving in on us every day of our lives. This is what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he speaks about our suffering. Those things we rejoice in, for they're the plans of a good God. Now look at what Paul says, therefore, about our suffering. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The third Greek word, katergomai, kata, The prefix means down, ergomai means to work, the word literally means to work down, it actually is the word that came to mean working it down to the very end, okay, working it down to the very end. I had in my mind a picture of a a person who's peeling potatoes out of a barrel, and they peel every potato down to the last potato in the whole barrel. I don't know why that was in my mind, but this is the picture of what uh, Paul is saying to us. He says essentially this, that suffering works down to the very end, endurance. And endurance works down to the very end, character. And character works down to the very end, hope. Right? Ultimately, the suffering that begins in our lives through the plans and designs of God, ultimately through the process of working those things out by the Holy Spirit within us, ultimately results in the hopefulness of the believer rooted in Christ Jesus, future-oriented, Believing that God fully will work these things together for our good. And so this is the design of a good God to work these things out within us. If you remember that passage from James 1, we we read it this morning, the reading from the epistles. James describes it slightly different, but he says this, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? There's a perfection that's being worked out, a, a direction that God has, an ultimate goal in his working in our lives through suffering and trials. These things are designed for our good. Let me give you, I, I think, a helpful analogy maybe. I, I am an outdoorsy person, or I like to think of myself as an outdoorsy person, and so I, I love, I enjoy things that are done in the outdoors. I like gardening, I like fishing and hunting, I like hiking and backpacking. Those are the things that I really love to do, okay? And if you think about those things, one of the common characteristics of all outdoorsy things is that they require a certain amount of rigor or energy, and they don't pay off immediate dividends, right? We don't get immediate satisfaction from them. You plant the seed in the ground, and three months later, there's a plant, or two months later, rather. Uh, You go fishing, and you might sit for the whole day waiting for a fish to bite, you go hiking and you say, okay, we're gonna set out, it's 20 miles, and eventually we're gonna to get to the overlook. We're we're heading towards the satisfaction of the culmination of the end of this trip, but it's it's rigorous. For that reason, outdoorsy type things are often hard to sell to children, aren't they? Right? Right? It doesn't come intuitively or naturally. They don't say, oh, Great, I love this. I love walking 10 miles, so we can look out over an overlook. It doesn't come natural. So I often want to do these types of things with my children, and I've gotten in the habit of trying to whet their appetite, right, to talk about the reward that waits at the end. And so if we're going to go hiking, I say, when we get to the top, you won't believe it. There's like cliffs with edges you could fall off, and there's a stream you could drink from, and and an overlook. You've never seen such an overlook, and it kind of helps them to, to go through the process realizing that the trail is leading somewhere, right? You kind of get that idea. This is what Paul's doing, okay? He desires to show us that the end of the trail that God has designed for us ultimately results in our hope, and that hope is a growing hope that finds its satisfaction in Jesus Christ, and he's desiring to show us that the things that we're suffering, the trials that we're encountering, these things are designed by God because they're moving in a certain direction that ultimately results in something wonderful and amazing, okay? Okay? And if we can just gain an appetite for those things, if we can just gain a vision for where this is going, we can see how then the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts to move us to rejoice in our suffering, okay, to rejoice in our suffering. As I was reading through this passage, I was thinking, I actually think it's true that in most ordinary means for the believer that the hope we have in Christ can't be worked out apart from trials and suffering, okay? I, I, think, that's, I think that's true. I think that's a, a biblical concept, that the hopefulness we have in Christ Jesus that is growing within us and is conforming us more and more to his image, that that in ordinary ways can't be worked out apart from the things we listed at the beginning and said, I, I want nothing to do with that, okay? I want nothing to do with that. Listen to what John Murray said as he was teaching through this passage, he said, We glory in tribulations because they have an eschatological orientation. That is, they are oriented towards the end of things, okay? We glory in tribulations because they have an eschatological orientation. They subserve the interest of hope. The present reality of the believer's pilgrimage must never be abstracted from its relation to the ultimate sequel, which is the glory of God, okay? Okay? Again, the present reality of the believer's pilgrimage must never be abstracted from its relation to the ultimate sequel, that is the glory of God. See what he's saying? He's saying the very thing we just spoke about. These things must never be disconnected from their ultimate end. That's the design of God for sufferings and trial in the life of believers. Let me tell you, this is one of the tragedies of the modern health and wealth gospel, isn't it? Right? I'm not just thinking about the Joel Osteens. I'm thinking about the health and wealth gospel that has permeated a lot of American churches. Okay? This is the great tragedy, and you think it is, it is terrible to associate faith with prosperity. The more faith you have, the more prosperous you are. Okay? But the flip side of that is even more dangerous, I think. Here's the flip side of that. The flip side of that says these things are bad. And if these things, the trials and sufferings, if those things are happening to you, it must be because of lack of faith. So what you see then is in that perspective, that, that unbiblical perspective, the very thing that God has designed to result in our ultimate hope is being despised and rejected is not good for us. And if you have that, man, something must be wrong with you, okay? This is, this is crept into the, the American church, right? And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll find ourselves also following the same type of thinking, The design of suffering and trials is for the good of the believer to result in our ultimate hope. Can you imagine, just just visualize this for a second, could you imagine for you and I what it would be like if when we encountered trials, instead of being like, "Oh, pity me, how terrible this is. This always happens to me. Why do I suffer? Could you imagine, instead of evaluating our suffering and trials through our emotions and our thoughts, could you imagine if we simply evaluated them through the word of God? What would that be like? I mean, it's so hard to imagine because we're so wired for the trials and sufferings in our life to think of them as this just, well, terrible random acts of things that happen to us. But what if, what if we were to encounter the trials and suffering, and I know they're great, and I know you experienced a lot, so I'm not belittling them. Can you imagine if we encountered them and we said, this is evidence that God's working things out in my life? This is evidence that he's making me more like his son. This is part of the plan of God. He's conforming me to his image. right? And we, we rejoiced in those things. It's, it's what we're called to. It's what is the result of our justification. I'm not saying it's easy. This is what the Apostle Paul is describing here. Here's the last thing. We should, we should also then ask the question, how? How is this possible? How, how do we how is our minds and hearts rewired according to the Word of God and not according to the things we see and we observe. Well, look at what Paul says in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, okay? Ultimately, the answer is through the Holy Spirit. It's what Paul's describing here. The Holy Spirit is the one who works within us to actually do this, to actually conform us and to change the way we think and to change the way we We react and how we encounter suffering. But look at at that verse for a second. Consider this, first of all, it says, hope does not put us to shame. Let me ask you a question. What type of hope would put us to shame? Let's compare this. If this is not a hope that puts us to shame, what type of hope does put us to shame? Well, if you think about it for a second, I was talking about this passage this week, and I said, you know, I think that's the type of hope. I'm going to call it the Wizard of Oz hope, okay? Wizard of Oz. If you remember what happens in the Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her companions are looking for the great wizard of Oz, and they believe when they get to the wizard, he's going to make everything good for them, okay? So they believe he's the great and powerful wizard, and he's going to give them the things they need, and so they're journeying to him, and they're filled with hope as they journey to the great wizard. And they get there, and they realize he's not the great wizard of Oz, he's this, you know, puny, insecure man behind a curtain acting as the great wizard of Oz. That's that's a hope that puts to shame, isn't it? It's a hope that puts to shame, and... The way that the world often describes Christianity is that it's a hope that puts to shame, okay? Christianity, seen through the lens of unbelievers, is a psychological tool that people use to cope with their suffering. Have you heard that before? I think you've heard it before, right? Okay, so it is for weak-minded people who can't deal with their trials, and so they imagine or they invent something that will help them to make sense of the suffering in their world. You've heard that before. And so it's, it is viewed then as a hope that puts to shame. Here's why the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 this is a very different hope. And look at what he says in verse 5 again. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see what he's saying? Our hope does not put to shame. It's not a vain or empty hope, and and that's because it's a substantive hope achieved by Jesus Christ who satisfies the Father and justifies us, and the evidence of that is the work that is being done within you. It's the work that is being done through the Holy Spirit that you as a believer have confidence and assurance within you by that work. Look, here's the last Greek word. It's the word ek-ekutai, Okay, ek, ekutai, ek, which means out. Uh, keo is the second part of this word. It means to pour. But when you look at the uses of this word in the, in the New Testament, you actually find it's even a, a, a more full word. It means to gush, to, to overflow. It is used twice in the New Testament apart from this. It's all over Revelation when God pours out his wrath, okay? And it's all over the epistles when, the, when Peter, Paul, James, and John describe the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, okay? It is a full pouring out, an overflowing pouring out, a gushing over. That's the word that's being used here. You see what Paul is saying. We know that we don't have a shameful hope. Because of what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ our Savior as evidenced by the pouring out of the agape, the love of God through the Holy Spirit in us, overflowing out of us. I love how that goes from the objective, the work of Christ in this world, to the subjective, the work that is going on inside of you. You can't, you can't make a math equation or a scientific evaluation that's gonna prove that. You can't look into a person's heart and be like, oh yeah, look, there's, there's where the Holy Spirit is. There's, there's where God is at work. But you know it as a believer that the internal testimony of the Spirit of God is the evidence that he is at work within you and therefore we know our hope is not in vain. Listen to what one writer said about this. He said, the love of God does not descend upon us as a dew in drops of rain, but as a stream which spreads itself abroad through the whole soul, filling it with the consciousness of his presence and favor. And this inward persuasion that we are the objects of the love of God is not the mere result of the examination of evidence, nor is it a vain delusion, but it is produced by the Holy Spirit. That's the inward persuasion that the Apostle Paul speaks about in this passage, all according to the plans of our God for. Good. You see, all of what's described in this passage converges together to guarantee the certitude of the unchangeable love of God and the effectual work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of each and every believer. And so let me ask you this one final question. If this is true... If our suffering is being worked out by the plans and designs of a good God ultimately to result in our hope as evidenced by the outpouring of his love in our hearts through the Holy Spirit and if we carry that with us, if that internal testimony is the testimony of the Spirit of God within us, what ought to be our response to our suffering and trials? What ought to be our response to our suffering and trials? The only logical explanation then is the explanation that Paul provides here this morning that more than this, through the justification of Christ Jesus, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and this hope does not put us to shame. So then we glory in suffering. We boast in suffering. We rejoice in suffering. We hold our heads up high in our suffering. We embrace our suffering, not easily, but because for the Christian, what begins with suffering, what begins with trials, what begins with hardship in our lives, ultimately, only, always results in our hope. in the hope that we have In Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We confess to you together this morning collectively. This is not an easy thing. For as much as our minds and our hearts may assent. To this truth. That you are working. Through our trials. And our suffering for our good. It is yet not the experience of us perfectly in this world. For it is so hard to disassociate the painful feelings and experiences we have from a sense of unworthiness, unacceptability, or ultimate hopelessness. And so I ask, Lord God, that by the work of your Spirit within us, may we see that the trials of this world are part of your plan and design. Ultimately to work in us a constant endurance that results in genuine character and a genuine character that produces hope and a hope that grows and grows and grows in Christ Jesus our Lord until the day that we are joined together with him and hope becomes reality. We ask, Lord God, that you would work within us that we might know and rest in and believe in Christ Jesus and this work that you have explained to us this morning. We thank you that this world is not a random conglomerate of events that have no meaning or purpose, and we thank you that these things are not outside of your control, purely permitting them. Or conceding them, but we thank you, Lord God, that you have divinely designed all things that come to pass for the good of those who love you. And now may we glorify you, Lord God. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we ask all of this. Amen.